0: In case you haven't noticed, Israel is going downhill fast. The stories in the book of Judges, the book of heroes, start out relatively entertaining and theatrical, but as these cycles of unfaithfulness and rescue and returning to unfaithfulness continue, we're spiraling down darker and darker and darker. Israel doesn't have any central ruler in the days of judges. Each of the judges we've studied is only a ruler over each of their little section of Israel. It's just usually a single tribe, a single area. It's a big patchwork mess. So after Jephthah's victory, the men of Ephraim accost him and say, why didn't you call us to join this great battle with the Ammonites? You robbed us of glory and we're going to burn your house down around you do you remember when they said the Ephraimites said pretty much the same thing to Gideon? Well, Gideon was able to mollify them with smooth words. He told them, you know, everything you did was better than I did. But Jephthah, he's a rough, hot-headed man, and his reply infuriates the men of Ephraim and ends up causing a civil war in which 42,000 Ephraimite men are killed. The men of Gilead capture the ford over the Jordan River. There's several fords. They capture them all. And ever after that, whenever a man tries to ford the river, they make him say the word Shibboleth, which means flood in Hebrew. If he pronounces it Shibboleth, they let him pass. But if he pronounces it Sibboleth, they know he's an Ephraimite trying to sneak across and they kill him. So even their dialects have grown to be different. Uh, Israel is in danger of disintegrating into separate city-states with separate dialects, separate rulers. They're, They're well on their way to this. So each successive judge after this is terrible. And it's, you know, no surprise that once again, Israel does evil in the sight of the Lord. There's that refrain. This time, when the Lord steps aside, it's the Philistines who conquer Israel. Now, remember that they had reared their ugly head during the time of Jephthah. They had joined with the Ammonites to attack Israel, and although Jephthah soundly defeated the Ammonites and the Philistines, he pursued the Ammonites into the eastern desert and the Philistines apparently melted back across the Jordan, and Jephthah did not follow them there. So this next story is set in the tribe of Dan in the period while they're still located on the border of the Philistine region, before the tribe migrated north. Although this map shows their original allotment, apparently they were never able to hold on to it, and Um, We find the Danites have settled in some of the other towns in the area. So the story opens today with a woman working in a field alone near one of these towns. Suddenly, the angel of the Lord appears to her, not a regular angel. This is the angel of the Lord, quote, which, as you know, when you find that phrase in scripture means it's the Lord himself in human form. So she recognizes immediately that it's an angel of some sort. And the Lord says, you are about to conceive and bear a son. Be sure that a razor never touches the hair of his head. He is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the moment of his birth. And he will begin to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. Now, that's a very strange thing to say. He didn't say, and he will deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. He said he will begin to deliver them. Now, that's an ominous way to phrase it. Already, we know this story is not going to have a happy ending. So the other thing is that he is to be a Nazarite. That's not, that does not mean he's from Nazareth. A Nazarene is from Nazareth. He's to be a Nazarite. So let's go back to number six and take a look at what that means. First off, a man or a woman can make a vow to be a Nazarite. And second, it's usually a temporary vow for a period of time. During your time as a Nazarite, there are three requirements. You must not eat or drink anything made from grapes. No wine, no hard liquor, not even grapes or raisins, like nothing. Secondly, you must not let any razor touch your head. You have to let your hair grow out. Third, you must not go near any dead body, either person or animal. If somebody dies suddenly in your presence, it actually defiles the symbol of your dedication, your long hair, and it is counted to you as sin. You sin because they died in your presence. So if that happens, you have to shave your hair off, do several ritual sacrifices, and start your time of dedication all over again. What I find fascinating is that there are two words used all over that that chapter about Nazarites in number six. One is the word Nazarite, obviously, but the other is the word dedication. And they're both forms of the same root word, just using different vowel points. One is Nazir, which means consecrated, set apart or untrimmed vine. And the other is Nazer, which means consecrated crown or hair. See how these concepts are all bound up together? If you look at the three consonants in the word, you can see they're exactly the same word. It's just those little dots, those vowel points underneath that are slightly different. So the hair is a huge, big deal. And growing it out symbolizes being set apart for the Lord. At the end of the period of the vow, you have to shave off your hair and burn it as a fellowship offering to the Lord. So all this, the woman in the field understands. She knows what a Nazarite is. The angel of the Lord continues. Furthermore, you yourself must also abstain from wine or strong drink and must avoid anything that is unclean. Now, most people interpret this to mean she must avoid those things during her pregnancy, but that's not what the Lord says. And I think um, some following passages indicate that she's to avoid these things her entire life. So apparently then the Lord leaves because the woman runs quickly to her husband Manoah and tells him what happened. Now, Manoah is thick as a brick. He really is. I'm not sure he really believes her even. And she only tells him about the wine and not eating anything unclean. She doesn't mention the hair. Even the Lord made a big deal about that. And that's part of being a Nazarite. She also adds, that Samson, that the, or the baby, is to be a Nazarite from his birth to his death. Well, that's new information. That it, It's not going to be a period of time, but a lifelong dedication to the Lord. And Manoah is like, well, if the man shows up again, come get me. And he prays for this to happen. He's very curious. So the Lord hears Manoah's prayer. But once again, he comes to the woman when she's alone. This time, she immediately runs to get Manoah. Manoah says, what should we do when our son is born? And you get the impression in the dialogue that the Lord's a little exasperated with Manoah. And he says, you do exactly what I told your wife already. No wine, no strong drink, no unclean food. And your wife must do the same, just as I told her. And Manoah says, well, can we offer you some hospitality? And the Lord says, no, but you can make an offering to the Lord. And Manoah asks, what is your name? So that we can know uh, who to call when all this comes to pass. Manoah is like totally clueless as to who he's talking to at this point. And the Lord says, why do you ask my name? It is Pele. Well, this is a place where English fails us. Bibles variously translate the word Pele all sorts of ways. Some have, it's a mystery. Others say it's wonderful. The NIV says it's beyond understanding. They're, you know, they're talking about what the Lord says about this name. So whenever you see that sort of diversity of translation, it's a clue that the English is not doing the concept justice. When that happens, be sure to look up the underlying Hebrew for yourself to get a broader sense of the flavor of the word. The first letter of the word, the peh in Hebrew, is actually the word for mouth. It's a whole word all by itself. And the hieroglyph for pili is a shepherd's hook followed by a mouth. The shepherd's hook is a symbol of protection and authority. So you can see from the hieroglyph that the root of this word, the ancient root of this word, um, conveys uh, this, this, this staff and this mouth. It also has a sense of darkness, which is where the idea of mystery comes in. So this word, when it's translated as wonderful or mystery or beyond understanding or secret, it's conveying something stronger than it sounds in English. It's conveying a sense of power and authority. It is another way the Lord is saying, I am who I am. I am the authority. I am the word. I am the Lord. Manoah still doesn't get it, but he brings the goat, does the sacrifice. Suddenly, the Lord ascends in the flames, and all of a sudden, Manoah realizes who that angel was and he cries out woe is me we're about to die we've seen the Lord himself and his wife says get a grip Manoah why would he tell us all this stuff he was if he was going to kill us and so it comes to pass just as the Lord said the woman gives birth to a son and names him Samson and the spirit of the Lord is strong in him The word for strong here in chapter 13, verse 25 means pounding, throbbing. And if Gideon was a Clark Kent Superman sort of hero, Samson is most definitely the Incredible Hulk. In the next scene, Samson is probably around 17 years old, and he's driven entirely by hormones. He's no doubt been told the story of his birth and perhaps been raised on a diet of praise and propaganda about how great he is and how God is going to use him to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. Well, he's curious about those Philistines and he spends time in their region. One day, he sees a Philistine girl he cannot resist. He goes home and demands that his father take her for him. His father sees nothing but trouble on the hoof here and tries to talk Samson out of this ill-advised alliance. Surely, if Samson is to deliver his people from the Philistines, he shouldn't be marrying one. But Samson insists. At this point, there's a very weird parenthetical insertion in the text in chapter 14, verse 4. It says, his parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines for at that time they were ruling over Israel. So let's talk about that for a second. It's really actually the key to the whole story. Usually the weirdest part that you run across that makes no sense. That's usually the key to the story. The story of Samson is like the tracks on a subway where there's two train tracks and then a third rail, the electric rail, the one with the power. God is like that third rail. And God's purpose for Samson's birth, stated back in chapter 13, is to begin to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. God has raised up and equipped Samson to do this. The equipping of Samson for his intended role involves being set apart to the service of God as a Nazarite, one who remembers God every moment of every day by never drinking wine, which is what they drank back then with every meal. And his being set apart to God is visible to everyone else as well because of his hair, his long hair. So freeing Israel from the Philistines apparently will require a leader like Moses, one of particular power derived from his awareness of what God is doing, his closeness to that electric rail. That is Samson's intended path, the rail close to God. It runs parallel to God and is empowered by God. But that's not the rail Samson follows in his life. Samson, still empowered by God, has run amok. He's not delivering Israel from the Philistines. He's about to marry into them. Samson is traveling a rail of his own choosing, still exercising the power the Lord has given him, but not by walking with the Lord and certainly not separating himself as holy as the Lord intended. So Samson and his parents head down to the girl's hometown of Timna. On the way, Samson turns aside from the road for some reason and is attacked by a roaring, full-maned lion. Samson goes into full, incredible Hulk mode. The spirit of the Lord stampedes through him and he kills the lion with his bare hands. The Lord miraculously spares Samson's life. But he doesn't tell his parents what just happened. Say, what? That makes no sense. Sense if the three of them are traveling together, his parents would have heard the commotion. Samson would have been covered in blood and scratches. I mean, from this point on, in this particular part of the story, there's all sorts of bits that are contradictory. And it's only in this section of the story about this, this gal in Timna. Why would that be? How do we make sense of that? well. You should be able to pull out the correct tool from your backpack on this one. You've already got that tool. We've used it before in the story of Joseph and his brothers back when they threw him into the well. When a narrative is disjointed, it is sometimes a sign that the author has tried to blend more than one source together. And that seems to be exactly what is happening here. The two versions are similar enough that we can't separate them as easily as we could back in the Joseph story, but the idea is the same. Don't sweat the minor inconsistencies. The author is just trying to give us as many details as he's got and as much context as he can, even if it's contradictory. And I actually appreciate that. So once the marriage is arranged, Samson and his parents return home to prepare for the wedding. When the time comes, they travel once again to Timna. When they get near the place where the lion attacked him, Samson turns aside from the road to look for the carcass of the lion. He's surprised to see a swarm of bees has laid a honeycomb in it, and he scoops out the honey and eats it and shares it with his parents, not telling them where it came from the carcass of a lion. Whoa, hold up a minute there. This is a huge, big deal. Carcasses are unclean and Nazarites are specifically prohibited from touching anything dead like that. And Samson's mother has been specifically prohibited from touching anything unclean either. So not only has Samson willfully sinned, he's caused his mother to sin. That's about as bad as it gets. So this is the first time we realize how far off the rail Samson has gone. Not only is he a rather typical, arrogant, self-centered teenager, but he's been consorting with the Philistines and is deliberately eating something that is seriously unclean. This is not going to end well. And sure enough, things go from bad to worse. When they get to Timnah, Samson is married and his seven-day wedding feast begins. The word used here for feast specifically includes wine. Samson and 30 of his Philistine friends eat and drink for seven days, and there's no indication whatsoever that Samson abstains from the drinking. Sometime near the beginning of the feast, the young men start playing a common parlor game of the time. They start telling each other riddles and making bets on who can guess the outcome. So Samson says, well, if you guess my riddle, I'll give you each a new set of clothes. But if you cannot guess, then you each have to give me a new set of clothes. The men cheer. All right, tell us your riddle, they say. And Samson says, out of the eater comes something to eat and out of the strong comes something sweet. Well, of course, there's no way the men could guess the answer to that. So they start leaning on Samson's Philistine bride to wheedle the answer out of him. She tries. She really does. She cries and she whines and she tries all her feminine wiles, but Samson won't tell her. Finally, the men threaten to burn her house down with her and her father in it if she doesn't get the answer for them. A new set of clothes is extremely costly in that culture and these young men have no way of making good on the debt if they lose the bet. So she redoubles her efforts. Finally, on the very last day of the wedding feast, he tells her the answer and she immediately goes and tells the Philistine men. They gleefully tell Samson, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Well, Samson is enraged and says, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have never guessed this. He takes this as proof his bride has been unfaithful to him. The metaphor of plowing his heifer implies he thinks she was literally sexually unfaithful with 30 men. Sheesh. So, of course, he goes into full incredible halton mode. He goes to the nearest big Philistine city, kills 30 men, takes their armor and gives it to his wedding party. Now, why he didn't kill the 30 wedding guests is a matter of speculation. Maybe the rules of hospitality. I don't know. Samson doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would care about that. And perhaps this is another place where two versions are blended. No one knows for sure. This is kind of the end of that segment where the two ver- there seems to be two versions in there. Um, and in the greater thread of the story, it doesn't, doesn't matter. The point is that Samson is betrayed by his bride and he takes deadly revenge. And notice that his betrayal results from his disobedience to the Lord by taking a Philistine bride, and by eating from the unclean carcass, and probably drinking too. Samson stomps home, leaving his bride in her father's house, shaming her. Some months later, after he's cooled off, he heads back down to Timna and tells her father he's going to go into his wife's bedroom to take her. Her father, dismayed, has to tell Samson he thought Samson had abandoned her, effectively divorcing her. And so he's given her to Samson's best man at his wedding. Oh my goodness. You can imagine what happens after that. Samson goes out, catches a bunch of foxes, ties their tails to flaming torches and sets them loose in the Philistine fields that are ripe for the harvest. An entire year's worth of food is destroyed. In retaliation, the Philistines burn the woman's house down with her and her father inside, just as they threatened to do during her wedding week. Then they they set out to track Samson down and kill him. They track him to a cave in Judah where he's gone to lick his wounds. When the men of Judah see the Philistines setting up camp around them, they go to Samson and beg him to let them bind him with new ropes and hand him over to the Philistines so that all of Judah is not destroyed. In an uncharacteristic moment, Samson says, fine, so long as you, my own countrymen, are not the ones to kill me. All I can figure is that he's really, really depressed and doesn't care whether he lives or dies. So the men of Judah bind Samson with new ropes and hand him over to the Philistines. But when he sees the Philistines, the spirit of the Lord again throbs and pounds in Samson. He breaks the rope, grabs the jawbone of a donkey that's lying on the ground, and with it he slaughters a thousand men. Afterwards, he's very thirsty, and the Lord opens up a hollowed out place in the ground and gives him water to drink. The Lord is clearly preserving Samson's life. The Lord still has a hope and a purpose for him to destroy these Philistines rule, to break their rule over Israel. After another miracle in which Samson defeats an ambush of Philistines and rips out the huge heavy gates of a Philistine city and carries them on his back for something like 30 or 40 miles uphill, you know, Samson, of course, becomes the hero and the leader of that part of Israel. Who else do they have like him, right? Eventually, something like 20 years later, Samson falls in love again, this time with the famous Delilah. You know the story, she, too, is probably a Philistine. She lives in the Valley of Sorek, which forms the border between the tribe of Dan and the Philistines. When the Philistines realize Samson is mesmerized by her, the leaders of the five big Philistine cities bribed Delilah to find out the source of Samson's strength so they can capture and kill him. The amount they offer is a king's ransom. It would be like offering somebody a million dollar bribe nowadays. Delilah, who clearly does not return Samson's love, readily agrees. She pesters and nags Samson, and he finally tells her that if he's bound with seven new bowstrings, he'll be as weak as any other man. So while Samson is sleeping, Delilah hides the Philistine men in his room, ready to pounce. She ties him with the bowstrings and cries, Samson, the Philistines are attacking. Samson breaks the bowstrings and jumps out of bed. Now, I think Samson may be as thick as his father Manoah was because he stays with this woman. After Delilah nags and pleads with him some more, he tells her that if he's bound with new ropes, he'll be as weak as any other man. Samson either is an incredibly sound sleeper or what I think is more likely he falls into bed dead drunk fairly frequently. And when that happens, the next time Delilah hides the Philistine men in the room and the scene plays out all over again with the same result. The whole sorry scenario is repeated a third time. This time, Delilah weaves Samson's hair securely to a stake. And again, he easily rips out the stake when she screams that the Philistines are attacking. And of course, by this time, she's embarrassed herself three times with these Philistine leaders. And she can see all that money slipping away. So she pulls out all the stops And finally, finally, Samson tells her the truth. He is subject to a Nazarite vow. If his hair is cut, he will be as weak as any other man. She implores the Philistine leaders to come just one more time. This time she's sure. And this time they bring the money with them. She lulls Samson to sleep on her lap as he sleeps peacefully the Philistines cut his hair and then attack him. He awakens and discovers he can no longer call on the power of the Lord. The Philistines capture him and gouge out his eyes, as is customary when subduing a captured ruler in the a Samson is forced into hard labor, literally walking in circles all day, every day, pushing a grinding stone. But his hair begins to grow back. The Philistines gather in their temple for a big feast day dedicated to their idol Dagon, giving him praise for their victory over Samson. All five of the Philistine rulers who bribed Delilah are there. The place is packed with thousands of people both inside and looking on from the roof. They drag Samson in to, quote, entertain them. You can imagine what brutality that might have entailed. Finally exhausted, Samson leans against a pillar for rest. As he rests, he realizes he's standing between two central pillars. In a final moment of desperation, he begs the Lord to give him strength one more time. One more time, Lord, let me get revenge on the Philistines for gouging out my eyes. This will be the last time, Lord. Let me die here also and he pushes against the pillars with all his might. The temple collapses, killing everyone, including Samson. Did the Lord do this to avenge Samson, uh, Samson's eyes? Possibly. Samson belonged to the Lord. Was Samson suffering akin to the earth, swallowing up Korah and Dauphin and thus atoning for their sin? Possibly. It feels as if the Lord was welcoming Samson home, doesn't it? Did the Lord do this because the glory for victory over Samson, the Lord's chosen one, was being given to the idol Dagon? Did he do it to show that the Lord is the one freeing Israel from the Philistines? Absolutely. This was the Lord's intention from the beginning. The Lord's motivation has always been to show himself to Israel and thus draw them to him. The Lord always accomplishes his purpose but how much better would it have been if Samson had been faithful what blessings did Samson and Israel miss out on because of Samson's willful disobedience when speaking of the Jews in Romans 11:29 Paul notes that God plans to bless them and to bless the world through them saying God's gift and call are irrevocable. God honors his gifts to us even when we pervert them and use them for our own purposes. God did not take away Samson's gifts nor his call. Samson could have turned around at any point. Even in the very last moments of his life, God was listening to Samson. God was willing to work with whatever sliver of obedience Samson offered. Samson's story is a tragic one on many levels, not only personally, but nationally. As the Lord prophesied at Samson's birth, he could only begin to deliver Israel through Samson. Samson seems to be such a failure, and yet the Lord stays with him. Today, in our breakout sessions, we'll think about how Samson's story is also the story of Israel. There are so many parallels. And perhaps that's why the story is preserved. Perhaps it's our story as well. I hope you enjoyed, you know, comparing, oh, yeah. Samson, comparing Samson and Israel. Um, and, and I'm not really going to review that. I'm sure you all cover that in your, in your groups. Uh, and unless you have a question about that particular part, does anybody have a question about comparing Samson to Israel?
1: No, well, it was a good analogy, frankly. Thank you for bringing it up.
0: Okay, great. What I'd like to spend our time on uh, right now is more the second half, not about you personally in particular. Those were thoughtful questions about your own gifts and how you're using them in the world. But what I wanted to um, bring up, what I want us to think about how people in general. A lot of times it's easier to see faults. It's easier to see the speck in our neighbor's eye than the log in our own. So I want to go at it from that, that direction. And um, and I want us to, to, to think about um, how people we observe in the world misuse their gifts. And I want to um, tie this back to the gifts of the spirit listed in the New Testament. The gifts of the spirit, include I'm going to use different words for them than what are used in the New Testament but you should be able to recognize them um one of the gifts is charisma personal charisma okay I'm um, just the ability to draw people to yourself and to draw people together uh, another gift of the spirit is leadership skills just the ability to organize and lead and identify you know the direction the group should go and to get the group moving in that direction Another gift of the spirit, believe it or not, is financial acumen. It's the ability to marshal resources and um, to gather, to to be of value, to do things of value that can gather value and resources. Uh, And and, and the question is, you know, how do we use, if we're the kind of person that can do that, what are we doing with those resources, with that money, with that um, power once we get it? Another gift of the spirit is the ability to stand up and speak truth to power. It's the ability to not only speak truth to like governing power, but to speak truth to the group. It reminds me of um, the Harry Potter series um, where at the end, Nigel was his name. Nigel got um, the award that put Gryffindor over the top because he had done what was even harder, which was stand up to his friends. Those, that ability to speak truth to power, be it uh, above you or, or within your group, that is a huge part of the gift of prophecy. You'll see the, the prophets that we study do that over and over. Another gift of the Spirit is teaching um, in a way that people uh, enjoy and that can and helps them learn, helps them sort through what is confusing to them to, to where they can see um, the bones of what's going on. Uh, exhorting people, being able to encourage them, lift them up, dust off their needs. That's a gift of the spirit. And another one is just simply communication skills. (laughs) So all of these you will find in the list of the gifts of the spirit in the New Testament. And I want us to think about how we see people gifted with those gifts and how we see people using them.
2: A worldly financial gain.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's hard to let go of those resources if you're the kind of person who can gather them, right?
1: We have a couple friend of ours, Gail, who um, runs, actually owns slash runs a Ford dealership in Beaumont. And um, they're mighty use of God. They give probably, I'm going to guess, 20, 25% of their resources to the ministry. and he definitely has a gift of knowing how to make money. Everything he touches is like that minus touch. It just, it
2: just makes money. It
1: just he just makes money. Um, and it's nice because I can look at that and not be envious and not be jealous. Uh, I can be I can look at that and go, we need people like that in the kingdom to further sponsor and to encourage things that otherwise could be encouraged or sponsored.
0: What about seems the- like there are
1: all sorts of gifts? It seems like there are all sorts of gifts that you can use to enrich the world or use to just enrich yourself. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes.
2: Or use to hurt
1: the world. Yeah.
3: True.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Some sometimes being selfish about something doesn't hurt anyone else. But there are some people that actually actively use their gifts to hurt people or maybe not purposely hurt people,
3: but not to help people.
4: That's one of those things that that I kind of struggle with. Um, You know, that you were mentioning that the gifts that God gives individuals is, is, seems to be endowed and remains regardless of how the gifts are used. And it goes to our deep sense of our our sensitivity to injustice and how we see people prospering who are doing bad things with these gifts. Um, I think specifically of certain... um, Religious leaders who use their powers of influence and, and ability to sway others with their words um, to invoke hatred of others or intolerance in other ways, or some church leaders who use their position of influence to get personal gain. You know, you got to give more to the church so I can have a private jet. Um and, and we don't see them getting their comeuppance. And and that's the idea right. that the gifts, that, the gifts <laughs> that they were given that allow them to have that kind of influence, yes, that God doesn't take that away. Yeah.
0: That is um, exactly right. And and that's I that's the point of Samson that I want to draw out, because it's very easy to look at that and feel despair. But but also look at that and know, because God allows them to use their gifts for evil, it seems like God's not doing anything you know, to prevent that evil um but yet what God is also doing is always leaving the door open for them mm-hmm. to repent and change. He doesn't take that power away. He leaves that choice there. I know that Pat and Andy have a um a uh, powerful marriage ministry, and I—I I would think um, that one of the places to see this dynamic happening is within the marriage relationship, where one person may take the gifts that they innately have and weaponize them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Okay. Yeah.
0: Um and, and uh and so I'm I'm thinking also um if you if we can if we if you think about that and about how you see that operating we should see bona fide gifts of the spirit operating in every single soul on earth right if you don't see that you're not looking with the eyes of God mm. And so you may see them perverting the gift. Absolutely. But the gifts are there. Usually multiple gifts within, you know, a given person. But when you start to see that there's a couple of things you can do, you can start to see how those gifts are intended to be used. If you see them perverted, it's often very often easy to see how it could be turned around and used for the benefit of the people that you know. Don't think of the church as something big and out out there and bigger than you can manage it. That's like thinking of our nation and the protests that you do as, you know, there's nothing I can do about what's going on up there. You can't, you know, do much more than vote and have a voice, but... Um, and and express yourself, but you can do a whole lot the further closer and closer and closer that circle gets to you. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is to begin to look at yourself in those terms as well. I think that we tend to think God is only asking us to be good people and to give, tithe our 10% of money, right? But I think what God wants is the 90%. I think our tithe is everything that we are every moment of the day. And I think it goes far beyond our ability to give monetary resources. Mm -hmm. So begin to think of your tithe more holistically and begin to think about what talents do you have that make you money? That's a good place to start with, well, what did God intend that to be used for in the body?
5: But there
1: can be other types of talents that may not make you much money, but can enrich the world in other ways. Besides Absolutely. just the ability to produce money.
0: Absolutely. For example, say some, Moody.
1: Well, um, during the breakout, I think it was Rhonda who said that singing uh, was uh, a talent of hers. And, uh, you know, that I don't know. There are not many singers that make a whole lot
0: of money, but you can certainly enrich the world with your uh, beautiful singing. Absolutely, and draw people close to each other to God, heal wounds. Singing music heals wounds, I think. Don't you, Rhonda? Oh, wasn't me.
4: <laughs> it, said, oh, it was oh, me. <laughs> oh, there you go. It was Julie. I ring handbells.
0: Maybe that... <laughs> that works. That's, that's important. important. I'm a yeah, dingling. That's what I do. Julie, talk about music and its, and its ability.
3: Well, first of all, I, I really uh, sincerely believe that music is um, a gift from God given to humans. Uh, it's a uniquely human experience that no one else in the animal or plant kingdom uh, does. And so, by using music, we—I um, I, think—I uh, I think it was. I see. It was Saint Francis. I said when. Uh, you sing you are praying twice so and if you are a child that somebody else said that if you're a child singing you're praying three times so (laughs) it is a beautiful way to um, experience in a tangible way the love of God and it it can be used not only to enrich an experience like a, a communal experience but can really deeply uh, touch a human in ways that no other uh, thing can touch. I
0: think that's right. And I, and that by Woody, I, and, and it's I the last.
1: Thank you, Julie. I'm sorry. I got your name wrong.
3: Oh, don't... <laughs> Rhonda and I are good friends.
4: Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Wisconsin women picking on Thanks. us. Yeah. <laughs> <up. laughs>
3: I
0: think that um, if you begin to see people's um, gifts, it also gives you another way to connect with people who may be, you know, going off the rails, kind of like Samson was doing. Um, because many people who are stuck in that that kind of a, a spiral like Samson was in, uh, feel like if if they turn around and begin to move towards the Lord, that they have to give those things up. And it's very helpful when you're talking to someone to help them see a different paradigm, to help them see that all those things that they love and that they enjoy and that they're good at and that give them life and pleasure and happiness, God is not asking them to give those up. God is simply asking to be able to transform those things into something that does good rather than yields um, death uh, for other people. And so uh, I, I don't know that I've ever seen God ask somebody to deny their gifts, to deny what gives them life uh, in order to follow him. I think that is uh, something the church got wrong,
3: you know? Oh, Uh, I agree with you completely. I'm sorry for jumping in here, but in uh, my daughter's uh, confirmation program, in order to encourage kids to come to the program because this was when they were in high school they were telling them that it was selfish to do the things that they wanted to do and they should really come to the confirmation program and learn about God and boy is that a turn off or what my daughter at the, i mean my daughter at that time was dancing um about 5 days Uh, It's actually six six days a week at that point, because she wanted to be a professional dancer, and you know that was basically saying, okay, if you want to love God, you can't eat, you know, you can't breathe air, you you can't drink water because it was so much a part of her life, and so yes, the church has gotten it wrong. Yes, exactly.
2: Hey, Gail. Yeah. Just to mention, yeah, I. You know, I feel I got to get to music. Uh, I was all state three, three years in high school on music. And I did use that, you know, I I would play in the church orchestra at certain times and use that for, uh, you know, for God, for the glory of God. It was, it was not, uh, you know, I did it when I was called. Uh, It wasn't all all the time, but, but then uh, I, I feel I got another gift before that and, uh, for, you know, uh, electronics, computers, whatever. I could actually, uh, way, way back when in the eighties, I, I was one of the few who could program the VCR. <laughs> 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 and I was in, in uh, elementary school.
0: <laughs> that's hilarious. But those
2: yeah. are all. Uh, so anyway,
0: <clears throat> that's yeah. Funny. So
2: I, I, uh, unfortunately, you know, I took the music gift as far as I thought I could take it, and then I switched to that other gift. Uh, Admittedly, uh, financial gain gain did have, but, you know, I, in turn, uh, shared a lot of that financial gain with the the church because, you know, I didn't want to be necessarily a starving musician. And, and I don't think that was my first uh, really great gift, anyway, but it was a gift.
4: Mm-hmm. It, I, think, I think another gift that, that um, a lot of people have and they don't probably necessarily see it as a gift, although others do, is um, I have a few friends um, who are amazing encouragers.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, they, and, and it's genuine. It's, it's not just saying platitudes, you know, I, I have one friend in particular who is one of those people that anytime you are in her presence or have a conversation with her, you walk away feeling better. Whatever the circumstances are that you are in at the moment, there is something about her that connects at such a deep level and gives such a loving and, 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 supporting response to wherever you are that you come away from that encounter feeling better and and i think that's just that's a profound gift that um often probably goes unrecognized or unappreciated
0: absolutely and it's one that many of us have and and i want to point out that many of these gifts um, can be developed and need to be developed over time that, you know, they, they're like plants that need to be nurtured to grow, to be able to be broadened and expanded. And, and, um, uh, and I know Gladys is on, on the line and she's um, one of the people that I have admired for her gift of service for her heart of service and of being aware of, of people and, um and she doesn't you know she beats herself up all the time because she doesn't think she's perfect but but this <laughs> is a this is a gift
3: <laughs> thank you Gail i appreciate that thank you Gladys for your gift of service yeah. there's there's I a place it. For,
0: it makes me feel good there's good. A, and, that, and it should that's the that's <laughs> excellent point Gladys your yeah. gifts will just give you a rush like Samson had it in spades he had the pounding throbbing incredible Hulk version of this (laughs) I don't think that's that for me (laughs) I don't think Gladys is going to be an incredible Hulk but but (laughs) but the rush of just your spirit just kind of kind of surges up and overflows we've all felt that That is how your gifts are intended to be. That it's just like, it washes the gunk out of your soul, right? So I just wanna, you know, I wanna say this is, you know, the official end of class. And um, as always, I'll stay uh, as long as you want. But I want this to be an encouragement to you to see with new eyes, to value yourselves differently,
1: you know, have you noticed that when you have a passion about something in ministry, it just seems that um, you're able to do more with less effort? Yes. I mean, that's been our situation too. I mean, we, we have a couple of passions between us, and it's it's not necessarily hard, it's not necessarily evil, but it, it uh, easy rather. But it um, having the ability to do something that you're good at and that you enjoy doing. Really, is more of a joy than a, than an effort. If you think about it,
3: mm-hmm.
0: absolutely. It's. I like to say it's great. like the difference between a hobby and a job.
1: Good point. It's great. great way of saying it. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
5: I was I was thinking too that there's a difference between like so we've got our gifts and then we also you know, gifts of the spirit and then the fruit of the spirit and you're know, like I just think watching you, Pastor Gail, you have the gift of teaching, but you also couple the gift of teaching with the fruit of the spirit. And so I, I wonder too, if there's like a marriage between that, that makes a difference because you can teach and be a jerk, you know, <laughs> and, and, it, can, it can could come, come across, it, can, it, it will not be received on the other end and it won't come across. It'll come across as lecture rather yeah. than, you know, loving instruction. And so I just think you're a great example of you have this beautiful gift, but it is presented in a way where the receiver is prepared to receive it. And I, I'm wondering again, if that, that has to do with your, the love, the patience, the kindness, the gentleness that, you know, so I'm wondering if again, the, the gift of the spirit are, are more, um, not successful. I don't want to use that word, but are, are able to be received and embraced and even given more. So when I don't know how we talk about in this group, but just being filled with the spirit and having those fruit of the spirit.
0: I think that's an excellent question. I actually had notes down here to talk about the fruit of the spirit, um, because when your gifts are being used, well, there will be good fruit. And the, the fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, faithfulness. I got them out of order, but those, all those good things, you know? Um, and, uh, and that gets to those, you remember the slide that had the two, the three rails, the two subway rails, and then God, this gets to that, because, and I didn't really speak about the other rail. Um, God is that, that power rail, the red one at the bottom, the, the gifts and the, uh, and the call would be that top rail, the one that Samson's went off the wrong way, right? Where where we can kind of switch that rail and go way off into left field, um, to mix my metaphors. But the but the the rail closest to God, that is a private rail. That is the inner rail. Mm -hmm. And that is the rail that has nothing whatsoever to do with your gifts that is the rail that has to do with staying close to god all the time every day and it's from that rail that the fruit of the spirit comes god gives us both rails and people over the centuries christians over and non-christians even over the centuries have learned techniques um for being faithful to make sure part of one of your wheels is on that on that bottom rail you know the one close to god uh the the monks in in the middle ages uh and ever since have have said well what you need to do is have some regular points during the day at which you sit down and think about god and pray And they call that quote the daily office and they do it every so many hours during the day. Um, Another, another, and there's many of those other people say, well, I stay on that rail by my morning devotional. You know, I make sure that I get up and do that. Other people will say, well, I stay on that rail by making sure I make quiet time during the day to meditate, to just, try to empty my mind of myself and all the stuff crowding in to myself and just be still and receptive to God. Whether God says anything or not, just be still and be receptive to God and other people um, will tell you like Julie, perhaps um, I, I stay on that rail by, by music. By entering into music, by listening to music, um, it it is the secret to those gifts being effective.
1: That's good. Yeah, mm-hmm. we listen to a lot of Hillsong praise and worship in our house. We've got a number of speakers up up, up above, and we'll just run that thing out. And uh, you know, we'll just be running around doing what we do around the house. But you've got that background, just constant movement. Um, and then something else that came up a, a while ago that maybe you guys would enjoy as well. We were visiting with one of my relatives, and he had some music in the background. And I asked him what it was. Um, so, not Yahoo. What is it? YouTube? If you put, if you, if you type in "soaking worship," like you know, soaking a towel, soaking worship. You put that on YouTube. That background music is phenomenal
3: hmm.
1: for anyone who loves music. Just go to YouTube. It's type
2: instrumental. In,
1: yeah. Type in "soaking worship." And you've got all sorts of just incredible background that'll open up for you and it'll run for hours. And there's no commercials. And it's just stuff that we love to hear in our house. Just something to throw out there.
0: Cool. And I also think that, that, um, at least in my experience, uh, it helps for some reason to stop and actually ask God a question. Hmm. I find that I my personality tends to call worry prayer. Hmm. And I and sitting there worrying about something all day is not the same as praying about it. And I have to stop and name it what it is and then ask God And most recently, of course, what I'm asking about is, Lord, I've got this passage in this thing I'm supposed to teach this week, and I have no clue what it means. (laughs) What is that? (laughs) And I've been working on it all day, and I've, you know, done research, and I've been, you know, it's, and I'm, you know, frothing about it. And I'll lay in bed at night, and I'll say, Lord, Lord, you know, if you want me to understand what this is, you're going to have to tell me. And bam,
1: just like that. Yeah.
0: Come into my mind. It is the weirdest thing, and um, and 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 I am at peace. If it doesn't come immediately, you know, I know that it's not something that needs to be said in this week's lesson. It's this is. I don't want you all to get the idea that I'm anything special that I'm doing anything you can't do. You can do all this, this right. that I'm doing. I'm trying to teach you how to do it. I'm trying to show you how to do it. I am not magic the, God is the quote magic part. Right. Um, and, and you can see how hard God tried to get the Israelites to just give him a chance. So give him a chance and see what he can do with it.
1: It's good.
3: Mm-hmm. good. Thank you. Thank you, Gail.
0: All Thank right. You. So let's call it a day. I love you tons. There's so much okay. to think about. And we'll see. You. Next week is a tough week. When you read the story, don't get scared and not come.
3: Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
5: okay. you. See you. All, All right. Way. I love you. All right. I won't read it.
3: I won't read it ahead of time. So I'll be surprised. <laughs> okay. There you go. Love you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.